0: Asana has always been good at practicing long-term thinking. It's not been a sort of like, iterate wildly to try to find product market fit kind of thing. At some point, we're like, this is going to take years. And people are like, huh, okay, well, we can't imagine Asana five years from now without having done this. So I guess we need to do it at some point, so we might as well be doing it now.
1: What's actually, I think, going to be the next trend for front-end is actually really investing in compiler and AST tools. With WebAssembly and more, like you're going to need to do increasing amount of works at build time, so that way you're shipping less to the client.
2: No one in this industry should hate their job. There is just too much opportunity, and there are so many good companies out there. You can find one. Don't settle. Hello, and welcome to Olicast, the podcast about observability. I'm Charity Majors, co-founder of Honeycomb.io, and I'm Rachel Chalmers with Merian Ventures. Olicast is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program that helps companies building cloud infrastructure, developer tools, and APIs take their products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic or a speaker, find us on Twitter at Olicast, O-11-Y-C-A-S-T. What's observability mean to you?
1: I think observability means to me the ability to see what our customers are doing, the actual performance they see. A lot of times you can test the feature on your sandbox, see how it loads, but it's not really representative of our customers. It's not representative of our customers overseas, or our customers with Windows laptops, or even our customers with Firefox. So it's really nice to be able to actually get those real metrics into our system and actually get a sense of what our customers are seeing and feeling. How
2: is this different from traditional monitoring?
1: Well, I don't think that most front end actually had monitoring or really real user metrics. A lot of the companies I've talked to when trying to figure out and understand this better sort of did either like experiment labs or other tests or just kind of relied on their own like internal reports of performance.
2: Sad but true. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And actually, like one of the worst things I think, and one of the reasons why I got into this was we used to have a Slack channel, and someone just like in staff or general would be like, Asana feels slow today. And then even if it wasn't slow, we had no way to prove it wasn't, and everyone would be like, yeah, me I too, know. me too. And then that'd be my entire day just I trying know. to figure that
2: out. Oh God, I feel that pain.
1: Everyone starts reloading and it gets worse. Or Yeah, 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 yeah especially yeah. with our old architecture Exactly. So this it. feels
2: like a great time for everyone to introduce themselves. I'm Charity, uh, you're used to hearing my voice. We have a pinch hitter for Rachel who hurt her foot.
1: Hey everybody, it's Michael Wilde from Honeycomb. I'm Cliff, I'm an engineering lead at Asana. Hi, I'm Phipps, and I'm a tech lead at Asana.
2: Phipps, you were the tech lead and original architect for much of Asana's conversion from legacy JavaScript monolith to the current stack. What were the goals of migration and what is
1: your current stack? Sure, so our current stack is TypeScript and React on the front end and then we also have a system called LunaDB which essentially is like a GraphQL server where all the queries are live by default which means if someone else changes a task name you'll see it immediately in your browser. And a lot of it actually I think the change was about making sure that Kind of going from imperative to declarative. So we had this already in our existing system with what we called uh, Luna 1, where everything worked on functional reactive programming. And React was just very similar in that model, but it sort of extended to the rest of our code base. We started using Bazel for our build system, which kind of let us have declarative correct builds by default, Kubernetes for our deployment infrastructure, just really kind of moving in that direction, helped people understand what was going on and reasoned about the system better. Beyond that, the biggest reason was obviously performance. It's a huge, huge challenge to build an in-house framework and spend years on it and then decide that it's not actually working and You have to change it. So we really needed to prove that the performance was going to be better. Oh yeah.
2: I always feel like in order to rewrite a system, you need to be goddamn sure that the performance is going to be at least 10x better than what you had before. Like it just has to be 10 times better, or it's not worth the pain.
1: Yeah. So I think that was actually probably the biggest leap of faith for the company is that we didn't really have any strong evidence that it would be. We had some intuition and it's pretty easy to reason from first principles that it would be true. But it was very hard to
2: That's what they all say. And <laughs> then it exploded.
1: Yeah, and it actually did turn out to be true. There's actually this one moment <laughs> in like 2016 where like we finally had enough pieces that I could like just do the new stack by itself like that. And it was really fast. And it was actually on my birthday of 2016. I was like,
2: yes! Oh, like, after birthday. like two
1: years of effort, just like, it worked. Oh,
2: that's amazing.
0: Yeah. The first time we had that side by side histogram, and that right side was, you know, so 20 satisfying. times smaller than the left side. I was um, like, yes.
2: Like, yeah. That is a giant leap of faith, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Happy
0: birthday to you. Right
2: yeah, yeah. I was like, right. I love how modern web stacks seem to be like the revenge of the functional programmers, where you least expected it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I also think revenge of the compilers. Increasingly oh, like yeah. what's actually I think going to be the next trend for uh, front end is actually really investing in compiler and AST tools. You see this already with TypeScript yeah. and Babel 7, but like with WebAssembly and more, Like you're going to need to do increasing amount of works at build time, so that way you're shipping less to the client.
2: I thought about this in the back end, but it never really clicked for me that it would be the same in the front end. Totally makes sense. What kind of performance tuning did you need to do? How how was it that you did the um, perspective shift of thinking about your users instead of thinking about the performance of the service?
1: Yeah, so I think the biggest thing that took a while to realize and was probably the first of many shifts was picking a single frame of reference. Mm. And I actually was like thinking about it like from the relativity perspective. And like with a front-end perspective, you can either think about it from the perspective of the server or the perspective of the client. Mm-hmm. But the perspective of the server is actually not that meaningful. Yeah especially cuz it's very controlled. The way that your client is is super different and the server can be helpful for understanding why certain client times are high, but like picking that one frame of reference was really really helpful.
2: And the path of the client request includes lots of things that aren't even on the server.
1: Yeah, or even things on, you know, your service. So a lot of browsers will either share memory or share performance concerns. Iframes also share the same execution context. So there's just a lot of things that could be going on browsers and stuff. So I would say the next major thing that we learned was actually to pick a, sort of a target customer, not because we cared about them more, but because they had less variance. So we were able to set, you know, cultural and product goals around them, which was really like helpful.
2: Normalizing your monitoring.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So we found that people in the United States who paid us for a lot of seats would actually have pretty stable performance. Yeah. And this actually I think makes a lot of sense because if you're paying for Asana, you probably have already bought pretty nice laptops and pretty nice Wi-Fi. So we've like <laughs> removed a lot of the variance right there, then and there. And that was really, really helpful so we could set goals around them. Yeah,
2: that's a really good point. And better than any kind of fake user that you could
1: mock up. Oh, for sure. I mean, did you do much instrumentation at all as well as far as
0: measurement? And like how did you view all that?
1: Yeah, so we have a tool that helped with the observability. And the biggest thing that I think... You built it in-house? No, uh, we had one in-house that actually wasn't working. We switched in 2014 to uh, another service. And kind of were using that. And the two things I think were really, really helpful with that were... The ability to set our own metrics. Mm-hmm. Specifically, we stop thinking in terms of percentiles, but thinking in percentage of users under a certain time. Now mm-hmm. they're basically the same metric, just which one's independent and which one's the dependent variable. But let people um, really click with them. I noticed that some people would sometimes think like the distribution was uniform or whatever, and like you know, fifty percent under one second. You know what one second feels like for a page load, yeah. and you're able to identify with that. And I think the other thing that was really really helpful was start looking at distributions instead of percentiles. Yeah. Once we started looking at distributions, we were able to find all sorts of bugs. So we started mm-hmm. to find like if you had two peaks in your distribution, you had a bad case. Get rid yeah. of it. If the distribution was really fat, usually that meant, or like wide, that meant like that something was scaling with the amount of data we're loading, so we need to put a limit on that query or a limit on that work. And then if it had a really long tail, it usually meant that something was in serial, and if we could put them in Mm -hmm. parallel, we would bring in that.
2: Or sometimes you'll just see a weird little spike somewhere, and you'll realize that it's because you have a distributed system, and some shard is down. And even though it's like, 2.5% 2.5% of your traffic, 100% of those requests are failing or 100% of those reads or those writes. Like Distributed systems, because of the way we've made them all resilient, you know, it's actually more fragile in certain ways because small chunks
1: of people, and these never show up in your time series aggregates when these really small chunks of people are just completely hosed. Oh, for sure. Yeah, we'd have really bad things from outages, but the one that was actually really interesting was discovering like massive differences between actually EC two instances. Oh God, yes. Let me tell you about this. <laughs> I, I, I come from databases, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, it,
2: it took us a while to realize some of them just have ghosts co problems, whatever. I, we prefer to think of them as like ghosts, and you just have to run like a regression test on the performance when you spin one up if you care at all about performance. So, how long have you both been there?
0: I've been at Asana for about six years.
2: Wow, you must really like it there. That's really nice to hear. Yeah. That's awesome to hear. I love it when you hear about someone who's been someplace happily for over two years, you know? All right, sidebar. No one in this industry should hate their job. There is just too much opportunity, and there are so many good companies out there. You can find one, don't settle.
0: I feel very strongly about this sort of thing. It's kind of a tangent for what we've been talking about, but like engineers get so much better when they understand the long term consequences yes. of their choices. Yes. And when people are switching every eighteen to twenty four months, you build something and then you just no idea how it turns out. Yes. And then someone who never met you rewrites it, and you have no idea why.
2: It, it makes it very hard to ever really develop into a senior engineer.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that I've been there for five years, and I think one of the biggest things was like designing the framework. And the new framework was well and easy. They're it was a lot of fun. It was a great time. But the hardest part was actually sort of the tail end and like, finishing and like, scaling actually like, for the number of developers, not the number of users and trying to teach everyone how to do this. And
2: I think of it, so I don't have kids, don't want kids, but I think about this kind of the way I, I hear parents talking about having kids. You know, like, yeah, my younger days were great, they were wild and crazy, but now I've grown up and this is much deeper joy, more fulfilling, <laughs> you know. And and maybe, maybe, but that's, that I feel that way about my job, you know. Like, the beginning, it's quick and easy and fun. Startups, especially, you know, everything's new, you get to build it from scratch, but there comes a point where it gets a little hollow and you want to really like see, experience, you know, you want to have an impact in the world. The things that they say make you happy in life are autonomy and impact and purpose. Purpose.
0: Yeah. So a question for both of y'all, you, you know, what kind of cultural changes uh, needed to happen for the migration to work out? You know, you, you just talked about, you know, the tail end of it, having to teach developers like new new stuff, but was there any bumps in the road? and How'd it work?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I can talk about a very small slice of it. I mean, one of the best parts about working with Cliff is that this is actually something I think Cliff shines at. So I'm really excited to hear what he has to say. But um, one of the things that we had to talk about was really sort of the engineering performance philosophy. Because we hadn't been measuring page load performance and it was so bad, people thought about just putting everything on page load. (laughs) And so to make other subsequent actions in the app quick. And it turned out most of our users actually, once we started looking at it, never really did anything more than one navigation. So like we were doing all this work on page load that for things that users never really did. So getting PMs and engineers to think about deferring work and then the actual like product experience around that, like you know having loading indicators or whatnot for these things that used to be instant, and having them be okay with it was actually a huge cultural shift.
2: I think of this in terms of it's it's like you want is observability driven development. So I was at Facebook, and you know, I went through this whole massive trauma with Parse, reliability-wise. But after we got into a tool that was, you could drill down to the raw request. And by the way, if you can't drill down to the raw request, it's not observability, in my opinion, because you don't have the ability to ask new questions that you didn't pre-aggregate by or like index by or something. You've got to get to the raw request. Um, but I found that once we had that tooling, the entire way that we thought about how we chose our work changed. You know, and it was like I don't want to build this until I have a good sense that it's going to have impact. So, you know, if we're rolling out a storage engine change or considering building it, we would calculate how much would this actually buy us? Would it be evenly distributed, or would only a few people reap the rewards? You know, and then you, you have this like muscle memory, this habit of checking yourself as you go along. Did I actually build what I thought I built? Did I ship what I thought I shipped? Are my users using it the way I thought they would? And it's just it makes it the idea of going back to not having that feel like driving without your glasses.
0: We have a really great series. Like we were working on performance in parallel with instrumenting our performance, where we yes. had sort of, sort of like we had this end to end. Like okay, we nice. have a number, and they're like this number is really big, or it's not really a single number; it's whole distribution numbers, right? That was another thing that we had to change. How can we make these numbers go down? And we didn't really know which parts are which, so we had sort of had this sort of okay, there's three parts: there's a server part, there's a client part, and they're sort of over the wire. And then we started breaking those into finer and finer pieces. And we found that in the beginning, when we were working on performance, it was almost like guesswork. Mm-hmm. Here's a thing that's bad, mm-hmm. probably, and then we made it <laughs> way be better. <laughs> but turns out that thing was actually happening in parallel with something that was taking longer. Right. So even though we'd reduced that step, we hadn't actually changed this the entire performance. is the thing that
2: people, I think, don't realize. It looks so big and daunting when you have all these performance problems. But in fact, in the early days, you get so many easy wins. You're just like, choo, 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 choo. There's just so much to do. And yet, you're going to find that there is so much wrong with your stack that you had no idea about because it was covered up over by these other things. Like, once you get it instrumented and you start looking under the covers, you're just like, oh, fuck.
0: Wait but, a second. We can fix that. Like, <laughs> someone, someone wrote in 2011, this might be a bad idea, but yes, leaving this here exactly, for now. Exactly. It actually did happen. Yeah, I know. the Constantine it, it thing. It
1: happens to literally everyone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The one thing I think that we didn't really know until we started looking at it was we spent a lot of time on our new server making it fast because our old server had been so slow. And, Turns out, like it was so fast that the client actually couldn't process the next frame of WebSocket requests, and it's like still even mostly true today. Like renders and like DOM paint APIs and all those things take so long that like the next WebSocket thing is like delayed for milliseconds. This
2: reminds me of uh, the longest performance capture replay thing that I've ever done in my life was. Back at Lumden Lab, upgrading from MySQL 4.1 to 5.0. Like we did it once, it crashed and burned. We had a day and a half of downtime and some lost data. It was traumatic. So I went off in this like year-long quest to develop software that would let us capture 24 hours worth of queries and replay them on hardware, tweaking one thing at a time. And I got it, and I did all this stuff that it made instead of like 20% slower, it was actually like 1.5 times faster. I was so proud of myself. Then I quit. And I checked in on them like a few months later. I'm like, hey, how's it going? And they're like, oh, we just replaced them all with SSDs. And I just went, (laughs) 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 holy crap. Okay. Well, I feel great about the last year of my life. (laughs) Corollary question Are your software engineers on call?
0: Yes. Yeah. Um,
2: How do you feel about this?
0: I think one of the really nice side effects of bottling up half of Asana's product engineering to work on performance or rewriting for a year, a year and a half, they got their feet wet. Yeah, is now that we have a lot of engineers, we have an engineer on every team who cares about performance and knows how to measure performance and knows how to think about it and can help teach the people around them.
2: Can you describe your on-call rotation?
0: Sure. Uh, We actually went from three on-call rotations really down to two. So we basically have one for stability and uptime. So they're the ones who are receiving the alarms from databases, uh, AWS instances, that sort of thing. We had one that was just focused on release on call, so that was basically how we do build deploy, making sure that each deploy is going smoothly, that sort of thing. Helping uh, the web on call, which is the last one, um, understand the state of what's on production right now, doing cherry picks, rollbacks, that sort of stuff. Web on call is often less timely, but they're responsible for generally triaging performance bugs as well as any other kind of bug. Um, Something that really happened at Asana is that people internalized that performance was the product, Um, performance is a feature on top of everything else. And so, performance bugs get triaged in the same queue as other stuff. I think we're less successful than we could be on like having everyone really, really believe that. Especially as like the dark times when the performance was the number one terrible thing about Asana, like get further, further away in the rearview mirror.
1: Yeah, and I also think the thing that we've learned this observability thing in numerous cases, like we actually improved our builds that way. But one area I don't think we've really gone in as good as we can yet is sort of errors on the front end. Mm-hmm. We have our own in-house tool for it, and it's good. But I think they, it really could get even better if we mm-hmm. could do that level of observability and uh, query for understanding why specific things happen. As we were saying earlier, um, it's a single page app. Everyone merges into one app. And for right. better or worse, it's kind of like a tragedy of the commons. And complicated things happen. And I wish we had more tracing and more ability to like, actually see all the logs that customers were doing, not from a creepy perspective, but just so we can yeah. give them the best sort of software yeah, experience totally. possible perspective.
2: Do you do distributed tracing?
1: Uh, what do you mean by that?
2: Have you set up, you know, any Jaeger or Open Tracing or anything like that?
1: Um, I think we have some on the back end. I'm actually not super familiar with yeah. that. I haven't touched it in a while. No, worries, I was mean, just curious. It's not really that distributed when you have a single threaded process on the client.
2: This is true. But it can still be very useful. It's a waterfall ov- overlay over your events so you can see if like, you know, this hop is 50% slower than usual or something like that. Especially if you're lining up like lots of database requests, really valuable.
1: Yeah, so we do have that for the LunaDB system itself, so we can actually do a waterfall and see how long each individual sort of function resolves. So LunaDB acts like a GraphQL server and sort of proxy for all of our backend services from the perspective of the front end, and so there you can actually observe what the time is. For the most part, it's actually not been the issue, so I don't think most people at the company no, know totally. how to use it.
2: I think that another key thing that we're seeing when we talk to people, a refrain that we hear echoed is, "It's not." Fixing the code—that's a problem. Debugging the code—it's knowing where to look, what part of the code to debug. It's like triaging, like slicing and dicing in real time. Like, you no, know, where are the errors coming from? Especially if you're a platform, you know, any error, any latency increase that you emanate can theoretically infect everyone and make the latency rise for everything. And then it's a matter of like tracing it back to to the original uh, requests. So, were your software engineers on call originally, or was was this part of the process? Pretty,
0: pretty much since the beginning, people have been yeah. on call, and we sort of originally just had. I joined as the like twelfth or thirteenth engineer, so I don't know about the beginning, yeah. beginning, but it was just a single on call rotation where everyone nice. responsible for everything. That's we wonderful. sort of specialized over time.
2: Yeah. And and are there many complaints about that, or is it just accepted? How bad it, are you? It your can on call? be
0: exhausting. I think the web on call is less demanding because the, when. Things are wrong. It's easy to just roll back. We have a really sophisticated activation system for which releases people are on, so it's often like emergency to just roll back, and then you have time to debug it.
2: Debug at leisure. Yeah,
0: it is more stressful for stability on call um, or infrastructure on call because those fires just when they happen, they need to happen. We have a few people now and across the world in terms of engineering, so we have much more coverage for the sort of nighttime hours. So on-call engineers aren't really expected to wake up at three in the morning to diagnose what's going on. I think that's done a big help, but we do need to make sure that as Asana engineering gets larger and engineers get more specialized and product engineers are further away from the infrastructure, that product engineers are there to help infrastructure engineers when you know, the cause of yeah. the thing sometimes is, like, oh, database went down. I but think sometimes it's really
2: it's- important for management to commit to allowing enough time for the engineers to pay down the technical debt that they need you know, I, there's nothing more frustrating than knowing what needs to be done, but like being like, "Well, we have to ship these features, so you're just going to keep getting your sleep abused for the next n weeks." Like, that's terrible.
0: That's one of the things we really like about having pretty much all of our engineers do some form of on call once yeah. they've been onboarded, is because they see the negative effects yeah. of you know you have a lot of voices externally in the company saying we need this shipped by yeah. this deadline. But and you have the val- engineer
2: unified going, "No, no, no, we are all going to get woken up." Right. I agree. I agree, that's really powerful. We've found that at, at Honeycomb there are two questions that predict, above all others, whether or not a customer will be successful with us. And they are, are your engineers on call? <laughs> and can you summon the engineering discipline to structure a fucking log line? Yeah. Without yes. the swearing. Yeah. When yes, he does
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> so did you summon the engineering discipline to structure your log lines,
2: right? Uh, are your logs structured?
0: <laughs> yes, exactly.
2: Yeah. Makes sense.
0: Uh well, are, are your
2: log structure? Yeah. 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 Of course they are. Uh, I didn't even yeah. need to ask. Okay, I felt okay. like I could tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so like what kind of the cultural aspects of Asana really lent themselves? Which of them did you feel like you were kind of fighting or needed to be changed? And and which of them really were like the wind at your back, really helping you?
0: There's definitely like both pros and cons to the Asana culture. So one thing that kind of made it hard in the beginning, especially in the beginning when the team was struggling to figure out exactly what was going on, was Asanas culture has a big emphasis on transparency and sort of having well defined problems. And it's hard to define the performance problems often because, like, a lot of the work. Right, there's a problem.
2: (laughs) That's all I know. (laughs) All
0: the work is in defining the problem. There might not
2: even be a problem. It's it's possible that the reporter is unreliable, you know, but we think there might be a problem. We've
0: had six people complain about it today. So that's (laughs) our metric that we're using. Um, Yeah. And so I think it was hard for the rest of the company to sort of understand why performance was so hard if they hadn't been yeah. working on it, because like why aren't you just solving it the why don't normal? You just make it faster? Right. Why don't you define the problem and then solve yeah. it? Like we're trying to. That's that's <laughs> I, the hard I've part. I've always
2: struggled with this being being an operations engineering. You know, so often it's like people are like, well, it took me a long time to even understand how people could like assign amounts of work that it would take them to ship things. I'm just like how do you know? Because so many of the things that I have were just like, figure out what's wrong. I'm like, I can't attach a number of hours to that. Like, you're crazy.
0: Right. As soon as I figure out how many hours it's going to take, I'll tell I did, you retrospect. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Could be uh, one, could be 10. Yeah.
0: But but something that really helped was Asana has always been good at practicing long term thinking. Mm. It's not been a sort of like, iterate wildly to try to find product market fit kind of thing. The no, founders fail fast, and product people. Yeah. Fast
2: and break things. And
0: so people <laughs> yeah. were sort of understanding, like, at some point, we're like, this is going to take years. And people were like, huh okay, well, we can't imagine Asana five years from now without having done this. So yeah. I guess we need to do it at some point, so we might as well be doing it now. And there's obviously questions yeah. And, and yeah. about the timing. That's a keynote speech
2: right there. Yeah, yeah. yeah this would be an yeah. awesome, I don't know if you guys have given talks about this transformation, but I would
1: watch the hell out of that. Pip should think about it, yeah. yeah is- <laughs> In
2: fact, if you want help editing or like crafting a, a blurb or whatever, I would be super down for that.
1: I would love that, that would be great, thank you.
2: Totally. What kind of cultural changes did you need to help make enact?
1: We've
0: talked about some of them. I think for the team, like it was—it was actually that timing thing. Because I think most of the people working on this were actually product engineers, and so they were used to having this, like, hey, we think this will take about four months, and we right. have this this predictable cadence of happiness, right? Where right. you're going to be like working on the beginning, and it's fun, and then it's getting closer to crunch time, but like we got two weeks left, we can do it, and then you know, there's this whole sort of rhythm that you're used to. And the sort of performance investigation work, emotionally, it's a lot more unpredictable. Yeah. Right?
2: Oh, that dopamine hit when you find it, though. Oh, there's no But it comes out
0: of nowhere, because you're just like, we have no idea what's going on, we have no idea what's going on. Hey, that thing that we did, it totally worked. Yeah. You know.
2: And that that requires a different ownership model, too. Yeah. You know, if you're used to being able to hand everything off at the end of the week when you're off being on call, and maybe you can't do that with something that just stretches on and, you know, it's not worth handing it off.
1: Yeah, I, I do think the thing that's sort of coming to the next level, though, now that we actually understand it so well is trying to internalize it and make it tools yeah. for it. So I was on performance for a long time. Now I'm back on our product team and enjoying the very regular mm-hmm. four-month cadence. But it was really funny. One of the problems I found for page load performance actually came back and I helped make an alarm, the alarm on it. And I actually made it worse. And an alarm sign. I was like, yes, <laughs> victory. <laughs> and like getting more and more of that so developers are enabled to do the right yeah. thing by default yeah. is really a thing that we focus a lot on in our code.
2: Totally. Think of it like crafting a path, you know? Like it shouldn't be impossible to do things, but like by default, the right thing should happen. When I talk to a lot of companies who are kind of making that shift from being, you know, 50 people to over 300, and they've passed that Dunbar's number, mm-hmm. the successful companies tend to start out with a lot of chaos. With a lot of if you do your own thing, engineers are empowered to make their own decisions, pick what you're gonna pick, you know, go. And then they reach a point where it's like they have spaghetti and nobody can get anything done because they're all fighting with each other's tools. And the advice that I always give people is don't take away that engineering autonomy but craft a golden path like bring your most senior technical people into the room don't let them leave until they've agreed on you know here are the tools that we are going to support as a company and that we are going to recommend that people use we're going to use this for monitoring we're going to use this language we're going to use this to put now you're free to choose something else but you will be supporting it mm-hmm. yeah. and i think that that's the best the best path that i've seen
1: yeah we kind of go through that occasionally but people have Stayed to the single sort of stack, and actually, the tooling efficiencies around it have been oh, yeah. so much faster. Oh
2: God, it's amazing!
1: Language was pretty easy; everyone got that. But actually, I think the biggest one was sort of build system and tools. And at first, what about people, databases. That's an interesting one. We actually just <laughs> had that come up again. Um, for the most part, we're staking with a single database. A lot of this has to do with our actual database structure. Mm-hmm. So, due to the Facebook DNA of Asana, uh, mm-hmm. we have. Store everything in what we call an OKV store, but it's usually entity attribute value traditionally. Mm-hmm. And so, because everything's stored in this very flexible way, you really need the sort of query adapters for the most part to do any product work. So, you have to go through that. And it's just not that interesting to scale up a new database. Mm-hmm. Also, our product data model is so coupled together in order to provide you that wonderful experience of creating tasks in one project and seeing them show up in the right, next project. Yeah that there hasn't been a lot of need for databases external to the product. The newest one, though, is for making sure we actually understand how our customers are paying us and why, and that's been a really interesting question of sort of what level of functional programming and immutability Mm -hmm. do we want in our database.
0: Yeah, for billing history, you want that generally to be immutable. Um, System versioning is a really useful thing for that because that's just sort of guaranteed that you understand where each transaction came from. And someone I manage was the tech lead for this project and he wanted to use MariaDB, Which is a fork of MySQL that sort of has system versioning by default. And there's a sort of like, oh, MariaDB has the promise of it's exactly like MySQL, except plus system versioning. But is that actually true? Well, it takes, you know, historically it's been like twelve to eighteen months for them to catch up with new versions of MySQL, but they're doing it, but it's getting a little bit slower. Do how much faith is there in that? And how important is it for system versioning to be first class in the system? And so there was a lot of sort of gnashing of teeth and, and debate about whether or not this was the right thing to do. Um, we ended up being conservative and going with MySQL. You um, did the
2: right thing. Thank you. <laughs> uh,
0: peers we've talked to from other companies have yeah. helped validate that. Um, so, but yeah, it was a sort of one of those moments where I was sort of like, "What is the the golden path?" And I think that was yeah. a major influence of it. Is like we're actually fairly immature in terms of thinking about services. We haven't had to choose which database we're going to use that many times. The
2: closer you get to laying bits down on disk, the more risk averse you should be.
1: Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> what we ended up doing, and for yeah. that reason, too. Yeah. Nice.
2: Well, for each of you, I mean, we've talked about this a bit, you know, but like, what were the biggest lessons that you learned? What advice would you give to folks who are contemplating doing something similar? And finally, what were your biggest mistakes?
0: One of the things I learned. And I, I was learning at the same time as the organization was like how much to trust engineers and this sort of thing. I think in the beginning it was this high-profile project. We're going to fix performance, rah rah rah. And then after the first month, where numbers hadn't actually moved that much, we were like, "What's going on?" And having more people care made it worse in a lot of ways. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And
0: when we actually finally started having success, was like, "It's too complicated for us to be explaining things. Let's trust the team that's working on it." And trust that they are motivated to solve the problem that we think is the problem. And at that point, when they had a lot more freedom to just pursue the spark of random idea that they had, even though it wasn't on the roadmap of like six most promising thing to try, I was like, something is weird here. I'm going to spend a day or two looking at it. That made a huge difference. And so one thing that we've learned from that is we've actually continued to maintain, um, its mandate is now more broad than performance, but it's a client infrastructure team. And it's, we don't, question it's staffing. We're not like every year like, oh, is like 12% of engineering the right amount of engineering to spend on like meta projects? We're just sort of like, we're not going to try to compare the apples to oranges. We're just going to reserve engineering time to make engineers' lives better, things more reliable, things faster. Uh, and that's something I'm really, really proud of as sort of like the legacy of this like big performance effort. Yeah,
2: You need to write a blog post, dude.
0: <laughs> <laughs> In terms of mistakes, I mean, there there's a lot. I mean, like letting it get to that place I was talking about first where it's just like, Hey like what is our weekly status update about performance like it's just not the cadence of how performance work goes
2: you um, know but it always goes this way you know it's it can always be put off and put off and put off until one day it can't but like all along would you have achieved your goals as a company if you were regularly parceling out the because you don't actually know which features are going to be popular until they're popular you know mm-hmm. and I think that it's more likely to be a sin to overly optimize in advance than to like just wait do your best and then sweep it all up once you need to
0: yeah. Another mistake, just because I don't want to leave out too many of my mistakes, is setting goals was sort of like we just did it in a vacuum. Oh, yeah. We're just sort of like, well, we have out like in the first six months, we think we can move this number by this much.
2: <laughs> in, just throw a dart at the board. Right. Just
0: like... And it was totally random. And then when that number wasn't hit, everyone was incredibly disappointed. And mm. like, this has been a failure. But it's like in those six months, we made tremendous strides in observability and yeah. logging. And the next six months after that went amazingly. But by then, people had no expectations. So, the sort of like, we didn't understand how the order of how things happen.
2: Picking that first goal number is such a shot in the dark. Yeah. That first interval is always about figuring out what the number you should even set is. Yeah. And I've got to imagine that a lot of this was education, like internal education.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, all of us were figuring it out. I mean, like that Phipps, when he sort of inverted that graph to be not percentiles, but here's what the bands are, and here's how my people are in each band. And I was like, oh, that's what it looks like. Okay. Man, I Let's move like, that part. I feel like
2: we could do an entire podcast just talking about the user education.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> but your turn.
1: So I think the things I learned were really about sort of focusing on the developers using your tools. I always, when designing the new framework, thought about it sort of like as a product. Mm-hmm. I had been at companies in the past where they didn't treat their tooling that well and they didn't think about their customers as sort of hostage users or like their other employees and really trying to do that well. and you're never done, so you got to keep going and keep improving. I think one of the big mistakes is Asana made a great framework called Luna, and then they kind of just stopped. And because we stopped, we had to reinvest, and it took a lot of effort, and that's why I'm really glad that we have the client infrastructure team going. I also say like doing it incrementally and continuing to ship product is really important. You can't just stop the world for the rewrite. And kind of related to the developer tooling, the advantage of treating your code like data And as another product, and really getting involved with code mods and getting rid of bad patterns. And like the tooling around code sets people up really, really well. So at this point, we have the ability to like really enforce patterns, get rid of old patterns through code mods. We can delete bad types of code. And actually, I think that kind of a big change from the learning that I had was we needed to convert the client. And we kind of did that with this incremental rewrite. And Now I can think that we can actually fix our server code because Asana traditionally actually ran the same code on the client and the server with a stateful process. I can fix the server code by actual incremental changes to our framework and code mods to actually transform the code from one state to the next state and hopefully not lose data and information along the way.
2: I love that you say that because I was just sitting here thinking... You know, I had had a little bit of trepidation coming into this because I am so far away from being a front end engineer. You know, and I'm like, well, I know what we're talking about. Will I have anything? You know, will it feel completely awkward like I'm, you know, talking to them about knitting or something? And like, this felt just like a conversation that we would have had about instrumentation and observability on the back end or the databases. Like, same thing. Like, minus a couple of like words of like this framework versus that framework. And I feel like people kind of get. I know I I got I get a little mentally distracted by the idea that there's a browser I'm like oh it must be completely different and it's just another client you know oh yeah um, and somebody once said that um web, the web was the original distributed system right browsers are the original distributed system clients yeah I just think that's really fascinating I can't think of how this would be a different conversation this has been really awesome though thank you guys so much for coming
0: thank you it's been a lot of fun cheers
2: well that's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic or speaker, find us on Twitter at OlliCast, O11YCast. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with
0: amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and
2: other industry leaders. Have a lovely day.